The Church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Well, good morning, church. Some of you may recognize behind the blurred out portion of his face this well-known televangelist who a few years ago made an appeal to his supporters through television and internet to help him raise the funds because the Lord needed to provide him with a second jet. And so one of the most consistent criticisms levied against the church in the United States is, for people that are cynical about it, all the church cares about is money. Well, look, if you're listening to my brother in Christ, that's probably the way that you view things. It's difficult to look at someone who's slick, who's telling you if for every dollar that you give, God's going to give you a tenfold return. That's a lot better than you get out of the stock market these days. They promise that God is going to bless any person that gives to their cause, but yet, Oftentimes, there are visible, clear signs that they're lining their pockets with cash, with benefits, with posh amenities, like a second jet. I'm still working toward my first. It doesn't take a detective to recognize the lack of congruence between the priorities of Jesus Christ and the priorities of someone who would bring that message. If I could say to my friend, my brother in Christ, I would simply say, please shut up in Jesus' name, shut up. Like All the rest of us are having to deal with the blowback of your ridiculousness. But that represents a very small, although visible, minority in the church. And I actually think the criticism that all the church cares about is money. This is really the broader point of the New Testament. The assumption that Christian stewardship is somehow about fundraising. Let me bring a surprising message for some of you today. I don't believe God wants our money. As you heard in the uh, announcement video, it's hashtag all in 2023. We believe that a healthy Christian life is comprised of five areas of engagement. Prayers, presence, which means attendance in church and life groups. Prayers, presence, gifts, financial support. Service, using your your talents and, and gifts to serve the church. And finally, your witness, inviting others to join you or introducing them about your faith in Christ. We believe that kind of captures the life of a disciple. And our church every fall asks every member once again to reevaluate Where is God calling you this year to live out those five priorities? For what purpose? To become more like Christ. It also empowers the body of Christ in the church to carry out God's ministry rather than simply asking for professional staff members to carry it out. So, the text that we're looking at today is one that may surprise us because I believe it's telling us that God really doesn't want our money. The text that we're looking at comes from the Gospel of Luke. What you have to know about the Gospel of Luke before we get into chapter 21 is this. The Gospel of Luke is different than Matthew, Mark, and John in at least this respect. Mark, Dr. Excuse me, Dr. Luke, we believe he's a physician because of the details he includes in the healing stories of Jesus, likes to take people who live on the margins of society and make them primary characters in God's story. And so you have figures like... Zacchaeus, a well-known kind of infamous tax collector that Jesus goes and eats at his home and and brings him into the fold of God's kingdom. You have stories of sick people that Jesus goes and touches to show to everybody else they're not 
um, disgusting people. They, they deserve God's love too. You have outsider characters like the Samaritan who becomes the good guy in the story in Luke chapter 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that's why, by the way, Luke doesn't call Jesus' Sermon on the Mount the Sermon on the Mount. It's given that title in Matthew. Luke tells the same message, but he calls it the Sermon on the Plain. And instead, like Matthew, of saying that Jesus went up and stood on a high place and then spoke to them, he says Jesus went down and stood on a level place. In the Gospel of Luke, God is demonstrating that God came down for the lowliest to lift them up and help them know the worth that God puts upon them. Well, this point in Luke's Gospel has Jesus feeling pretty exhausted and exasperated. You see, we read from chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, but what just happened prior to this at the end of chapter 19 is Jesus having spent three full years of ministry up in Galilee near his hometown of Nazareth, has finally made his way south, gone and looked through a little detour through Jericho where he met Zacchaeus, and now has entered into Jerusalem. In this map of first century Jerusalem, you're looking at it from with north, south, um, east, and west. Well, if we were to pull the camera back just a little bit, you would be able to see that on the right of this image, on the eastern side of it, is the Mount of Olives. And Jesus descended down the Mount of Olives and entered into the gates of Jerusalem to go to that yellow rectangle that is the temple, the center of the life of worship in Israel. And when Jesus entered the city, the people were ecstatic. They greeted Jesus like He was a long-awaited Messiah. They shouted, Hosanna. They waved palm branches. They took off their clothes as He rode on the back of a donkey. And this probably made the religious leaders nervous. They heard Jesus being welcomed as a a wise rabbi, as a person who came with God's authority. And then He makes His way straight into the temple and drives out the money changers who were corrupting the temple worship by marking up the prices and trying to sell animals and materials for worship to people who were likely in need. This sets the stage for the next couple of days. And so we read from the end of chapter 19 up to chapter 21, verse 1, a series of interactions that Jesus has with the Sadducees and with the Pharisees. Over and over again, they bring up questions to Him. They try to catch Him in a kind of a catch-22. They put Him on the spot. And Jesus has just had an encounter with the religious leaders, and then He walks out to the court of the women. And He says so that everybody else around Him can hear to His disciples, these Pharisees cannot be trusted. They line their own pockets and they love to carry their flashy robes out into public and be greeted as one who has authority. But they're lining their pockets based on the income of widows. Widows. Jesus has a special place in His heart for widows in Luke's Gospel. And actually, the special place in Jesus' heart is just a magnification of His Father's heart. Because all the way back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, after the Ten Commandments are given, God gives a special word of instruction for how Israel is to care for the widows who live in their community. A stern warning, actually. Listen to this in Exodus chapter 20. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Do you get the sense that God might care a little bit about these vulnerable persons in Israel's society? 
You hear it again in Psalm 146 when the greatness of God is being magnified by the psalmist. He says, He is the Maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, and He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but He frustrates the ways of the wicked. God sees them in their need and cares. And this theme is continued into the New Testament. After the Gospel of Jesus has been shared for three years, Jesus' half-brother James, the author of the book of James, in the very first chapter, gives us an idea of how we can make God happy or proud of us in the ways that we help people. In verse 27 he says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In other words, because these people in need are made in the image of God, we are required to care for them. And because we are made in the image of God, we are required to strive for holiness in our own life. We know that Jesus Himself has a special place in His heart for widows because 14 chapters prior to chapter 21, He's walking through a small community called Nain, N-A-I-N. It's a few miles south of Nazareth. And He hears a funeral procession. There's a young man that's passed away. He is the only son of his widowed mother. And as Jesus comes near to the funeral procession, he reaches out and touches the parade. So the man is raised to life. Why? Because the text says that he saw her and he had compassion. And here in Luke 21, Jesus sees another widow. Now in this diagram of the first century temple, we're looking at it from a bird's eye view. On the left-hand side of this image, you have kind of the sanctuary of the temple. It includes the Holy of Holies, where the priests would go and they would sacrifice animals to atone for Israel's sins. But on the right-hand portion of the image, the portion that's outlined in red, was called the Court of the Women. Now, in that time in the world, there were some things that men could do that women could not do, and that included certain roles in the temple. Well, the court of women was not a place that was restricted to women, but rather that was open to men and women. They could move and come and go freely from this space. In the sanctuary, they were allowed in, but only in times of worship. Well, in this court of women is where Jesus is sitting when our story takes place. And he's noticing that around the outside walls of the court of the women, there are 13 trumpets. Now, these are not trumpets like instruments that you would play. Rather, they're, they're large horns that would come out and be connected to a box. They were offering plates. And some of them had specific purposes. Some of them were for the general upkeep of the temple. Some of them were where you would go to pay for sacrifices if you were presenting a grain offering or two small turtle doves like when Jesus was presented at the temple by Mary and Joseph. They would have taken their coins and placed them in the horn. And Jesus is sitting out in the court of the women having just had, having just had another altercation with the religious leaders, arguing them trying to argue with Him. And while Jesus is sitting there, I envision him, although the text doesn't say it, that he's just sitting there with his head in his hands, frustrated, brokenhearted, and exhausted. And then Jesus sees an unnamed, voiceless, moneyless, powerless person. And Jesus says, looking up, Jesus saw rich people throwing their gifts into the collection box for the temple treasury. 
He also saw a poor widow throw in two small copper coins worth a penny. He said, I assure you that this poor widow has put in more than them all. All of them are giving out of their spare change, but she from her hopeless poverty has given everything she had to live on. Gustavo Dory, a French impressionist or engraver, he would make steel engravings of biblical images and then put ink on, roll ink on them, and then press them on paper to create a stencil-like image like this. He captured this moment. There in the foreground of the image you have the humble widow who approaches the box to give her gift, her face downcast. She's dressed simply. Just behind her, over her left shoulder, are some of the religious leaders standing in their large robes. There are tassels in their robes, if we could zoom in on them. They're standing, leaning back, looking down the bridge of their nose at this poor person. Jesus in the background with the light illuminating his perspective, a halo of sorts, is standing back giving instruction, pointing out what's happening in this moment to his very disciples. Jesus sees this poor person give two simple mites. Now this is what's called in the Greek a lepta. It's a copper coin. It refers, it's called the thin one is the actual translation. A widow's mite. I actually have one in my pocket today and I'm going to pass it around the room. Um, This is one that my wife picked up the last time we were in Israel. It's actually from the time period of Jesus. They're pretty easy to find because almost everywhere they dig on archaeological digs, they find these small copper coins. It's encased in cheap sterling silver. I'm not even sure that the chain that it's on, that may be some kind of brass or something, that may seem like it's cheap, but it's actually the more appropriate way to adorn and surround this small thin one, this lepta, because this was the smallest currency available during the time of Jesus, and she drops them into the offering. Uh, Cameron, if you would please take that and share it. And let's pass it around and let you take a look at it. I was going to say, Ken, if you'll be the last one to make sure it gets back to me, but he's got light fingers. So Kyle, if you would, (laughs) please make sure that that gets it back to me. (laughs) I did some math on what this might be equivalent to today. I thought, you know what? All right, so we know that that was equal to 164th of a working person's wage, daily wage. 164th of a working person's wage. So I did some kind of creative figuring. I took the first year salary of a school teacher in the state of Alabama with an undergraduate bachelor's degree in their field. I divided, I subtracted about 15% for taxes because I was feeling generous. I then divided that by 52 weeks and five days a week and divided that by 64 and it equals $2.16. Jesus sees this widow deposit $2.16 into the offering. And he juxtaposes that pittance of an offering against the larger gifts from wealthier, more educated, more powerful people. Eugene Peterson captures this interaction this way. Just then he looked up and saw rich people dropping offerings in the collection plate. Then he saw a poor widow put in two pennies. He said, the plain truth is that this widow was given, has given by far the largest offering today. All these others made offerings that they'll never miss. She gave extravagantly what she couldn't afford. She gave her all. 
Jesus is watching all this, and as Dory captured in his engraved depiction of this moment, Jesus is observing something that's a whole lot deeper than just coins clinking into a brass horn. Jesus is reading the internal motivation and character of both groups of people. Jesus, I think here, can see what's motivating this person out of her poverty to give something that she feels. She needs this to survive, and yet she's giving generously. Versus the people who come with all of the knowledge and all of the presentation, who look really good on the outside, who leave a tip. Brothers and sisters, if this story teaches us anything, it's that God really doesn't want our money. If Jesus was presenting a seminar on religious fundraising, He would not start with a measly $2.16 gift. That wouldn't pay after inflation for this bread that we'll have for communion today. It wouldn't purchase a roll of paper towels that we use in our kitchens and in our restrooms. That's not what this is about. In fact, Jesus knows the wealth that His Father has. I mean, He's the only one ever who created something out of nothing. God spoke and things materialized. It says in Psalm chapter 50, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills, I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. I don't believe God needs our money. And God isn't looking at the number of zeros that we could add to the end of a check. There's something about this woman's gift that tells Jesus it's an indication of the unseen condition, the unobservable condition of her heart. What does it mean that everybody else gave out of their spare change, but she gave out of her Poverty. Maybe it was this. From the Old Testament into the New, part of the offerings in the temple were devoted for benevolence, priestly benevolence. There was a fund in the temple from the Old Testament into the time of Jesus that part of the gifts that were given for the ongoing ministry of the temple were used to care for people who were in the most desperate of situations. This is a person who had to live in a spirit of dependence because that was the only way she could survive. And yet she takes a pittance of what she's given, something that cost her something precious, and she gives it back. She may be financially in poverty, but spiritually she is rich because she lives one day at a time trusting in the goodness of God through the ministry of God's people to keep her alive, and therefore her heart remains open to give because of all that she has received. Compared to the professional priests. Easy to take pot shots at them. Heck, I'm one of them. Who feel like their position is not one of holy service, but one of preferred privilege. And I can can spare just a few dollars off the top won't ever feel it. That's not a position of spiritual dependency. I've been thinking about this text over the last few weeks in particular because about two months ago, our church got a letter from an attorney, one of the good kind. The letter that is, there are no good attorneys. (laughs) Just teasing. 
<laughs> Is that an amen? <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. We received a letter that one of our members who passed away a couple of years ago that the majority of you never met because the last six or eight years of her life, she was physically dependent upon her health care setting. She was in assisted living, unable to come to the church that she had loved so well, served so well for so long. And she had remembered the church in her estate. She was a widow. She lived on a pension. And she remembered the church in her estate. I remember at her funeral when Pastor John, who had known her for over 20 years, stood up to give witness to her life. He had been her pastor when she was able to participate in the church. And he lifted her up as one of the persons around whom the prayer life of the congregation centered. He spoke of her spiritual riches. It wasn't surprising at all that unbeknownst to us, she had remembered the church after her time on earth had come to an end. You see, happy generosity comes from knowing how much we have received and is a secondary fruit of the spiritual abundance that we have been given. This widow lived in a position of physical, financial poverty. She had to rely on God's sustaining grace in her life, and that made her more able to give something small but was an indication of the faith within her. The other people were still waiting on the transformation of their own heart to understand how much God had truly given them. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you through this story today. God does not want our money. God wants us to become generous people. A generosity that arises from the gratitude for God's grace in our life. I was thinking this week about a time when I might have witnessed something like that and I realized that the, the foremost example in my mind was not observing someone in the church that gave a generous gift. We have many, many generous people in our church. But the story that I thought of in real life in the 21st century actually came in March of 2017. Four and a half years prior, my wife and I had felt God was calling us to adopt, and we began our adoption journey. And it took much longer with many more surprises and difficulties than we could have imagined. But we finally had the opportunity, me and Cameron and Henry, our oldest child, to fly to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and to meet our daughter in person for the first time, having known about her for years. Uh, friends of ours snapped this picture. This is the first two or three minutes that we finally got to meet Hannah. She was wearing a dress and shoes that we had sent over through other people who were adopting about a month or two before we got there. A surreal moment for us to be able to finally see, speak to, embrace, and hear her. And my wife, who just has that wonderful motherly intuition for how to engage children, had brought little crafts to do and activities and little gifts and, and necklaces and earrings and so on. And so we spent the next couple of days just getting to know her during the day there at the group home where she was living. And we would blow bubbles together and we would jump rope. And we've got a couple of pictures here of uh, some friends took of different things. Cameron's painting her fingernails, and Henry's got a, a Play-Doh ring that they've made around their noses, and 
Cameron's tickling her there. We were just getting to know each other. But every time, every morning that we went to spend time with her, we were able to bring uh, a new dress or um, a new toy and something. And we were just really, really enjoying those early days. The second day that we were there, in the afternoon, the children would take a nap. And following nap time, it was time for snack, everybody's favorite time of the day. And every afternoon, they got to have an Ethiopian snack that, um, not that different from something we would have, but this was something they, the kids had every afternoon. They have a soft drink there called Miranda. Miranda. It's made by Pepsi Cola. It's like orange Fanta or orange Crush. And they would take that glass bottle, and they would pop the top off of it and hand it to the child, and they had another little plastic cup, and they would take that bottle and pour it into the cup. And then they would open up the Kit Kat bar, which was, I could tell it was a Kit Kat because of the graphics, even though it was written in Amharic. And she, they would tear, tear it open, and they would break them one at a time and then snap them in two. And this was their tradition. They would then take the Kit Kat, dip it into the orange soda, and take a bite. And they just were as happy as they could be. And I remember standing back thinking, our, our guide was telling us, they like to dunk those things, kind of like you Americans do with Oreos and milk. You know, you kind of dunk them in there. And we thought, wow, that doesn't seem appetizing, but that's okay. And so Hannah was sitting there. She was still kind of you know, wiping the sleep from her eyes. But they handed her Miranda, and she opened her Kit Kat. She got it all open. And she broke off that first one, and she snapped it in two. And then she looked over at me and Cameron and walked over and she dipped it in that orange drink and gave us a bite. I never would have put those two things together. But in that moment, it was the best tasting thing in the world. She didn't have much. But what she did have, she was willing to give. Why? She was in a group home. because of what she'd been given. See, brothers and sisters, God evaluates our gifts based on the spirit in which it's given and the amount of sacrifice it involves. That's the beginning of living a disciple's life. Everything else originates from that. So my simple question for all of us to think about today, myself included, is this. Have you taken recent inventory of the riches of God's grace in your own life? May we pray. You are, O oh God, the source of all good things. And because you are a loving and kind God, you looked upon this world and you were willing to send your Son to become like us and you looked upon us, God, not only in our physical need, but also in our spiritual need. And you provided a solution, a hope for us, an otherworldly hope for us through Jesus. And my goodness, our words could never describe just how wonderful that gift is. So I pray that we as a church would look at our own life. We would take inventory of all we have been given through you and from you. Most importantly, God, forgiveness to be called your children and to be adopted into your family. And I ask that that would be the, the place that we start to think about how you might use our, lives, use our lives and resources for your purposes in the coming year. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Hallelujah.
The Church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ. 